Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Telly for History 302. Today we're going to be talking about hip-hop. So go on to um, Moodle, get the PowerPoint, and open it up. So Disco's Unlikely Legacy. Um, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Disco was decried for quote-unquote sucking, which was mainly an accusation against its homosexual and non-white elements. Yet in spite of its fiery demise, uh, From the Ashes become a genre of music with a lot more staying power. And to be honest, um, it's all about the beat. It's all about the beat. For all the other trappings Disco had, at its core, the music was catchy and fairly repeatable. Likewise, there was the centrality of the Disco as a place where non-live music was seen as the true version. Uh, this idea that there's levels of, I don't want to say authenticity because it's a loaded term, but the definitive version of songs became the recorded version, particularly because of disco. Now, as disco spread across the nation, in and around the Bronx, a new form of music was developing alongside our urban lifestyle. Although it started contemporary to disco, it would far surpass it, even though it would take some of its elements. Um, in time, it would become the most dominant form of youth culture, and I would argue the most important cultural development in the United States, and possibly in the world, uh, from then on. Of course, I'm talking about rap music. Go over one slide. You're going to see in the title of today's lecture, Tully finally rambles about rap music for upwards of five hours straight, 1973 to 1988. Uh, just kidding. I won't be talking for five hours straight. If you want to hear me talk for a lot more than five hours about rap music, though, uh, take my history of rap class. So I have to, you know, kind of, uh, as, as, as part of being part of a hip-hop historian, uh, I have to do this. I have to break down the difference between hip-hop and rap music. Uh, go on one slide. According to scholars and purists, there are technically four pillars, quote-unquote, of hip-hop culture. Uh, you can call it elements or whatever. Uh, they, they talk a lot about this idea of pillars because that's kind of a lot with uh, Islam, uh, there's a lot of, like, black Islam influence, uh, five percenter influence on early rap music. So this idea that there are pillars, just like there's five pillars of Islam, maybe there are pillars, quote-unquote, of the hip-hop culture. Uh, there is, of course, if you go over one slide, you'll see graffiti. That's the first one. Uh, this is much older than hip-hop, I would say. I mean, people tagging walls with, uh, you know, spray-painting stuff, that's fairly old, but the idea of making it into an art is theoretically a hip-hop thing. Then you have breakdancing. Uh, breakdancing is a style of uh, kind of very gymnastic, acrobatic uh, style of dancing where you get on the floor and kind of move around. Uh, then you have DJing, which is theoretically the most important part of rap music, at least early on. Uh, this changes over in time. And finally, you have rapping, which doesn't get a picture, or emceeing. Uh, emceeing is the rapping element, basically the person who kind of raps over the... Um, Music raps over the music. Uh, some include a fifth pillar, I guess, so they could really be like Islam. Uh, typically, something like fashion or knowledge, uh, the idea of street knowledge, or the idea of like hip hop fashion being the hip pillar. So, collectively, all these make up hip hop. Uh, each of those has a different elements, has kind of a time of popularity and prominence. Uh, first, graffiti is fairly popular, then, uh, breakdancing is the one that gets a lot of kind of cultural attention, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, play, a lot of uh, exposure, uh, then DJing is, is quite popular, and then finally rapping takes a prominence. Uh, technically speaking, all right, just technically speaking, uh, the DJ is supposed to be the most important member of the whole element. Uh, rap is viewed as only part of hip-hop. It's a, supposed to be subservient to DJing, 
But boy, doggies, does that change in time. Um, now, rap music is theoretically interchangeable with hip-hop, although not technically true. If you want to be like really specific, when you talk about rap music, it's only part of the larger hip-hop culture. So hip-hop is the culture. Rap is the style of emceeing, which is theoretically subservient to the DJ, because the DJ is supposed to be, quote-unquote, more important. Um, I'm getting way too much into the nitty-gritty of the historiography of rap music. Uh, just know nowadays, most like rap historians, like myself, we use the term hip-hop and rap interchangeably. But if you're a purist, um, all rap is hip-hop, but not all hip-hop is rap, but yeah, it gets kind of complicated. So uh, hip-hop has a very interesting DNA. There, there's uh, musically quite a bit about uh, where all rap music comes from, uh, at least from the music side of it. Uh, probably the oldest one is the Dozens, or Toasting. Uh, toasting or the Dozens is this type of, like, very much centered on wordplay. Uh, toasting is when one person does it by themselves, where they talk about just, like, how cool and awesome they are. Uh, if you look at, the, like, the old speeches of Rudy Moore and uh, Dolomite, kind of the Dolomite stories, or the way that Muhammad Ali would talk sometimes, that kind of, you know, jive talking almost, like, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, I'm too pretty, he kind of rhymes in rhythm. That's fairly old. Uh, even older than that is actually the Dozens. Uh, the Dozens is a name given to this kind of style of, it's a back and forth. Uh, the toasting is one person, whereas the Dozens is between two people. Uh, this idea of like verbal world wordplay, um, insult battles, like the your mama stuff. Uh, this very old in African-American culture, like... We're talking, like, straight off the slave boat, old. Like, this is this is as old as African-American culture. There is really no time or place where the dozens just came from. It's super old. Uh, you also have the pimp narratives, which I'd throw it in here, the pimp narratives, uh, with the stories of somebody like Iceberg Slim. Uh, Iceberg Slim was a pimp in the 60s and 70s, wrote a book that basically talked about his, uh, his life as a pimp, basically saying that, you know, pimping was fun and kind of easy and... You know, he, he, like, was tricky. Uh, you know, he, he would trick his prostitutes, trick the Johns. This idea that, like, you know, he's making money off of, basically, his brains. So that's a lot of, like, where the, the verbal elements, the lyrical elements of rap music comes from. A lot of it is this very early um, toasting, the dozens, pimp narratives, this sort of thing. Now, musically, like, instrumentally... Um, a lot of the lyrical content is seen in the blues and other African-American genres. Uh, early blues music, there's a lot of evidence of basically uh, blues music that talks about this sort of stuff. You know, the, the idea with the blues, talking about, you know, real life. Uh, generally, it's taking more of a lower-end socioeconomic stand, uh, particularly as rap music becomes more developed. Uh, there's more talk about rappers being rich and uh, quite wealthy because of their rhymings. Uh, blues musicians, you rarely, if ever, have this level of affluence. So there's other African-American genres that are that kind of get into this, most notably the blues, but there's other like, you know, African-American musical genres that have this type of element of it. Uh, a more direct influence is Caribbean music. Uh, Caribbean music, particularly the Caribbean uh, jive records. Uh, very hard to find recordings of these. I have a few. I don't think I have any for y'all that I found on YouTube. Um, it, it's like dance hall music from places like Jamaica and Trinidad, uh, kind of where the singer, it's like mainly over the music, but the singer kind of 
I, I don't want to say rambles, but like talks and rhythm, uh, definitely not as rhythmic as rap music would be, not as much influence upon rhyming, for instance. It's more of a calm response. Uh, calm response is also something you see in a lot of early African-American genres, specifically gospel genres in black church. Also in the same vein of uh, Caribbean influence on rap music is ska. Uh, ska music, early ska music, not the stuff you're probably thinking of, but early ska music actually predates reggae music. Um, it's also dancehall music. Um, this idea of like the ska artists, they're, they're playing horns and there's a little guitar rhythm. And they're kind of jive-talking over it as well. Uh, there are so many other elements that I can get into. I mean, part of rap music is just kind of throwing in the kitchen sink almost. Like, basically, if it sounds cool, we're going to mix it in. Uh, a lot of funk records, a lot of soul music, uh, particularly like James Brown. A lot of early James Brown is influenced in uh, hip-hop music. A lot of early hip-hop is basically this kind of James Brown way of talking as well. But it's a direct descendant of disco. Uh, even though all this other stuff is in there, uh, disco music is pretty much where most early rap draws the beat from. Uh, it's where most early rap really is like drawing a lot of its like visual influence. If you look at a lot of early rappers, you're seeing a lot of very strong disco influence into it. Now, uh, now we're going to be talking about the three founders of hip hop. Uh, rap music's interesting uh, in contrast to other genres because we actually have a birth date for it. Uh, we actually have a birth date for the genre as a whole. Uh, theoretically, the first time that hip-hop was played. Uh, that day would be August 11th, 1973. So it just turned 47 years old. So it's it's getting close to that AARP card. Uh, way to go, rap music. Uh, how this all kind of starts is there's a young girl by the name of Cindy Campbell. Now, Cindy Campbell, um, she's a Jamaican immigrant. Uh, her, you know, She was born in Jamaica. Her parents came from Jamaica to the Bronx. They came to the Bronx, came to the United States, She's a young girl in this time period. She's like 14, 15 years old. And she wants to throw a back-to-school party uh, to help buy new clothes for the school year. Basically, she 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 wants some money. You know, she she wants to buy some new cool clothes. And so she's like, you know what? I'm going to have a party. I'm going to throw the party in our apartment's rec room. Um, I'm going to charge one quarter for ladies to go in and 50 cents for the fellas. And to get the music, you know, to pl- kind of play for entertainment, she gets her brother. Her brother's name is Clive. Uh, Clive Campbell. Everybody calls him Hercules because he works out a lot and he's got huge biceps. Uh, you know, like, like his sister, he's also a Jamaican immigrant, of course. And he likes obscure records. He's like, you know what? My favorite thing is obscure records. Uh, this will later become a source of contention for DJs who they try to hide where they get their beats from. And his main innovation as kind of a, as, as what he did was he, he listened to these interesting records and he'd find the best, like, five seconds of a song. They, they call it the break section, oftentimes. Like, oftentimes in disco music and funk and soul music, there's like a five to ten second, like, instrumental section, which they really break it down. Like, it's the, the best part, whatever you will. And basically, what, what Clive was able to do, he called it the merry-go-round, is he was able to take two records on the same record, all right? Two, two records, same record, two copies of the same record, and basically, by switching between the two of them, he's able to make that five to ten seconds go on for quite a long time. Basically, he's able to take five to ten seconds by going back and forth, by switching back and forth, make it last, you know, minutes, several minutes, ten minutes, that sort of thing. Uh, this is called, the, you know, the, basically the best part. It will allow for more dancing, break dancing, just good old good stuff. It's the best. 
it's like the creamy center of the of the musical chocolate bar. It's uh, you know, it's that that one good delicious morsel that's spread out even longer. Um, you you can see the original flyer for the cool DJ Herc party just done on a index card. I, I I just love this that we actually have this. It also says that his name is Cool Herc. Uh, they call him DJ Cool Herc. That's his whole shtick. Uh, DJ Cool Herc. Uh, that's that's who he is. Um, you can go over one slide. You'll see a later picture of him. This is probably in the eighties or nineties. Um, he he's he doesn't have the best life after this. We'll talk about it later. But uh, his parties became more popular. Like this one party was a hit. Little Cindy Campbell raised a ton of money for her school for her uh, for her clothing, and more people wanted to come to those DJ Cool Herc parties. Like basically. Uh, they get a lot more popular. Word of it starts spreading around the Bronx. Uh, the Bronx is kind of going through a... No, oh, well, we'll talk about that later. Don't worry. Um, the Bronx is, you know, kind of a, a smaller place in this time period, and so a lot of people are hearing from it. And because he's doing stuff which is fairly easily emulated, like, he's not performing anything. He's just basically getting two records and a mixer, which is easy enough to get, and some speakers, and basically other people start emulating him. Uh, early hip-hop, we're talking like from 1973 to 1975, was really denoted by like these DJs who had the biggest sound system, you know, who could play their music the loudest, who was pulling from the most obscure records, like who's going to make some beats that nobody's ever heard before. Now, one of the first who really emulates him is Grandmaster Flash. Uh, Grandmaster Flash is seen there with the uh, GMF leather jacket on, uh, very disco-heavy influence. Um, he was a DJ. He was a DJ. He was known for basically his, his wheels of steel. Uh, he's the first one of, to really like use two different songs to kind of splice it together, kind of start matching the uh, beats per minute so that you could have like a, a cross section between this sort of thing. He's also, he's not the first, uh, Grandmaster Theodore is the one to first do record scratching, but Grandmaster Flash starts kind of taking that from Grandmaster Theodore, the city of the record scratch where basically you don't just go in between the two songs. You can scratch, and basically Grandmaster Flash got to the point where he didn't even have to like switch between the two records. He just knew where on the record the good part started, so he did it on the same with a record scratch. Like, did it, vip, that sort of thing. Now, one of Grandmaster Flash's cohort, and I am overly simplifying this a million times, because, like I said, I teach a whole class on this, so I'm giving the most simplistic version of this. But one of Grandmaster Flash's uh, cohorts was Millie Mel and also Kid Creole. Uh, they're the first, Millie Mel's the first one to call himself an MC and the first one to really start rapping, like rapping as we know it. Uh, Millie Mel and Kid Creole, I, I can't tell you which one is which. Uh, Kid Creole is the one on the left, actually. I know that's Kid Creole. And then um, Millie Mel, I think he's the one with like squatting down. Ah, oh, geez. I should know them all by name. Anyway, eventually Grandmaster Flash uh, adds five DJs. Uh, Grandmaster Flash and his Furious Five is what they call themselves. Uh, really is the first one to really get rapping involved with it. Uh, later on, because of this, DJ Cool Herc starts adding a rapper to his, to his, um, to his production, to his shows. Uh, he starts out as just a DJ doing his stuff. It's Grandmaster Flash, the first one who like, really adds a little bit more technique. Because, you know, nothing wrong with DJ Cool Herc, but his is pretty much just like two songs kind of flipped over and over. Uh, Grandmaster Flash brings in a little bit more pizzazz to it, a little bit more skill to it, and then also is the first one who really brings in rapping. So that's the second of the three founders of hip-hop. The final one is Africa Mbata. Uh, Africa Mbata, he's a very interesting cat. He's a, he, 
he headed up a nonviolent gang, quote unquote, called the Zulu Nation. Uh, gives a great deal of culture and shaving to the genre, uh, mainly in an effort to reduce youth violence. That is something that Graham, uh, sorry, that Africa Mbata is big on. He's like, hey, uh, there's a lot of gangs in the South Bronx in this time period. We're going to get into that. And basically, he's like, we need, you know, as black people, we need to come together. We're all, you know, under one tribe. He calls it the Zulu Nation. Uh, really brings a lot of culture and kind of shaving to the genre. Uh, very heavily influenced by things like the Nation of Islam and Five Percenters. Uh, very, very, very heavily influenced by the Nation of Islam and the Five Percenters. Uh, these three, so that'd be DJ Cool Herc, sorry, DJ Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, and Afro Babata, uh, are hailed as the three founding fathers of hip hop. Basically, when you talk about like the, who are the founders of hip hop, we actually have three individuals and we actually have a date. So that's something pretty interesting about that. A final thing I will mention that is interesting is that there is a already a very strong global presence in hip-hop. Uh, remember, DJ Kudlerk was a Jamaican immigrant. Uh, Grandmaster Flash was originally from Barbados. He was another immigrant. And African Mambata, he was born in the Bronx, but he was born to a Jamaican immigrant and a Barbadian immigrant. So even though they created a culture which came to dominate the African-American experience, uh, there was very strong global influence. Now, the real question, oh yeah, you see the picture right there, they're the three founders of hip-hop, that's in the 90s. Uh, I should mention that of the three, Africa Bambata is kind of a pariah now because of some allegations that have come out against him in the past five years. Um, Africa Bambata, it, it turns out, there have been several allegations against him um, sexually molesting young members of the Zulu Nation, particularly male members of the Zulu Nation between the ages of like 10 and 14 when he was considerably older. A uh, bit of a pariah on the scene now. Um, like I, I've seen all three founders of hip-hop like give a talk before. Like they used to do interviews and stuff together regularly. They used to like do the college circuit. Um, Africa Mbata is not really around too much anymore, mainly because of these allegations. Uh, they've not been proven, but they're credible enough that he even stepped down as head of the Zulu Nation, which was a creation, uh, organization he founded. Uh, also, DJ Cool Herc, he doesn't have the greatest life story after this. Uh, kind of hard times, even though he's the founder of hip-hop. By the time we get into the 80s, he's like broke, working at a school, at a, uh, not a school, like at a shoe store. Doesn't really get money off of founding this. Um, he also never records, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, he later becomes addicted to crack, and he's clean now. He is clean now. He actually put out like an album for the first time about five years ago. So it's kind of happy that DJ Cool Herc is doing better now, but he was not doing really well for a while. Uh, Grandmaster Flash, he did okay. He recorded a little bit, and he's he's doing all right. I, I can't say anything too bad about Grandmaster Flash. He's he's doing okay, but it's interesting that how some of these guys are problematic, particularly Africa Bambata. He is. Uh, persona non grata now, as, as is, well, we'll talk about that in a second. So why the mid-70s in New York? What, what is it going on in New York City in the 70s, particularly in the Bronx? Well, the mid-70s is a time of change in New York, uh, particularly for the Bronx, but everywhere. It's really in a transition. Uh, a new highway had put it in and basically displaced a lot of residents. Uh, the area, which had been fairly middle working class, had now become decidedly underclass. Uh, if we're talking like World War I, believe it or not, the Bronx was seen kind of as farmland. Uh, we're talking World War I, not World War II, but in World War I, 
the Bronx was seen almost as farmland. It was seen as country. It was outside of New York City. Had a lot of space. A lot of factories get built there because of all the space. Later on, uh, once we get into World War II, you have more people moving in, particularly more people of color, particularly more immigrants. You have a lot more immigrants that are being brought in, basically, to work in these places. Uh, then, once uh, manufacturing kind of shifts and people aren't going to get these jobs anymore, it's not doing that well. Basically, all the things they brought into the Bronx, it, it, it's transitioning from a middle-class, working-class area to an underclass area. Uh, into, into that, you add a whole bunch of immigrants. Uh, a lot more immigrants are coming in. Remember, I mentioned pretty much everybody in hip-hop is either an immigrant or the child of immigrants, particularly from the Caribbean. There's a lot of different reasons that I don't have the time to get into right now, but trust me, there's a lot of reasons why Caribbean immigrants are coming to New York in this time period. Uh, they were pretty much promised jobs, and uh, there weren't jobs to be had there because the jobs switch. Now, this becomes urban blight. I mean, the Bronx is a mess, to put it kindly. Urban blight becomes personified. Basically, buildings start falling down. Um, landlords start burning apartment buildings rather than having people charge rent it just for the insurance money. Uh, city services get cut immensely, like immensely. Basically, before this time period, before the 70s and the 60s, the Bronx has a lot of you know transportation, medical services, things like that. Uh, they get cut immensely once the jobs start leaving. That's not unusual. You have that quite a bit throughout the country in various places, but the Bronx really seems to be going through it really bad. There are also some teenage street gangs. Uh, not too many. Uh, they mainly to do with identity rather than crime. That's something you're going to see. Actually, there's been a lot of sociological studies about the dynamics of street gangs. And something you see quite a bit is that the reason that people join these gangs really doesn't have much to do with um, crime. It has more to do with identity. Basically, these type of uh, gangs really develop in time, times and places where it's not felt like there is a lot of opportunity to be had. And so hip-hop seemingly fills this void. Uh, for the longest time, for about six years, hip-hop was solely a New York-based party phenomenon, mainly in the Bronx and part of Harlem, and it really speaks to the set. I mean, a lot of early hip-hop is really speaking to like these black and brown young people who are living in a place that's not doing that great, they feel like they don't have a lot of job prospects, and, you know, they're joining gangs mainly for sources of identity, not really because they're keen on crime. And, and hip-hop is really speaking to that. I mean, breakdancing, for instance, is done instead of fighting. Like, that's one thing. Like, when you have breakdance battles, it's instead of fighting, like, gangs would, like, breakdance with each other. Uh, graffiti was done primarily to trains and to abandoned buildings. Like, you generally don't graffiti places where people are already living. It's mainly done to things which aren't doing that great. It's a response to current situations. Uh, DJs usually played in rec rooms, basketball courts, because it really wasn't being done in clubs and discos. Uh, discos, even at nightclubs, generally looked upon like these rappers as like kids who are low class, and they don't really have money. And basically, it's like, why would we have this in our club? You know, a club exists to make money. People are going to pay money for this. People are going to pay money to come in. And, and you know, this the, the early rap music, the, the real focus was dancing and partying. Uh, not really the music itself. You know, it's basically like, hey, it's it's the same five seconds of a song looped over and over for ten minutes, but you can dance to it. You can have fun. You can have partying. Now, they're not really opposed to making records, but nobody really seems to be interested in it. 
um, from both a rapper perspective and a music industry perspective. Uh, most rappers aren't too keen to get on to recorded records. I mean, they're they're not against it, but they don't think why there's any reason to do fit. Likewise, most record labels aren't interested in signing rappers because either they haven't heard of it or they don't think it's going to make a lot of money. Plus, uh, who wants to like make a tape of a live party? Remember, this is a party thing. This is supposed to be spont- spontaneity. It's supposed to be you know kind of fun. I mean, who wants to watch a party on a tape? Who wants to listen to a party on a tape? Um, it's more about the live experience. In fact, that's one thing you hear about the early rap guys. Whenever they are asked about do they want to record, they're like, who, who wants to, like, you know, why would we make a rap song? Who would want to go to a two-minute party? Like, rap songs, rap parties were known for being, like, you know, the DJ transitioning from one song to the next to the next. Even though they're using canned records, it's all about the live experience. And I want you to talk about that whenever we discuss this in class. Uh, this idea that, like, you know, it's all about the live experience even though you're using taped contents. Now this changes, and boy does it change, in 1979, with the release of Rapper's Delight by Sylvia, by, sorry, by the Sugar Hill Gang on Sugar Hill Records for one Miss Sylvia Robertson. Now Sylvia Robertson is an interesting individual. Like I said, I talk about her much more in my history of rap class. This is, <laughs> I could, like the title of the said, I could ramble about this for five hours. I'm not. Uh, Sylvia Robinson was a R&B singer who found limited success in the 50s. Um, she was a child star, kind of like a teen star. Uh, she re- she did a 50s song called Love is Strange. Um, if you've ever seen Dirty Dancing, you know the song. Anyway, um, she's, she's now in middle age of this time period. Uh, she has a record label with her husband. They put out like little jazz records and stuff. However, she's living in the suburbs by this time period. She's living in, like, suburban New Jersey. Uh, very middle class. Not really keen to what's going on in the Bronx. And she's interested. she gets interested in rap music, weirdly enough, whenever she goes to a birthday party for somebody for her niece. Um, or maybe it's for herself. Um, if you've had me in my hip-hop class, you will know that early rap music, it really gets into a lot of hearsay and the dates get fuzzy. But sometime in 1979, Sylvia Robertson went to the Harlem World Nightclub. We know that's the Harlem World Nightclub because that's the only club in Harlem that does rap music in this time period. Uh, there's some nightclubs in the Bronx that do it. Generally, in the Bronx, you have more house parties. In New York City, though, in Harlem and Manhattan, I should say, it's pretty much just the Harlem World doing it. And she hears hip-hop for the first time. Uh, we don't know which DJ she had because we don't know the exact date that she went on. Uh, she claims it was one person, but then the person she claimed wasn't, you know, actually performing at that time period, so it gets fun as well. Now, she hears this, and she's like, wow, this is fun music for the kids. I, I want to make this. I, I think this is going to be something really big. I think this is going to be a huge hit. I need to make a record of it. So she goes to the DJ. That particular DJ is like, uh, I, I don't know who's going to do it. He's like, I don't want to do it. Um, likewise, she goes to Grandmaster Flash of the Furious Five. He's like, this is stupid. I don't want to do that. Uh, a lot of rappers are really not keen on doing these recordings because they're like, who wants to go to a 15-minute party? Or, sorry, who wants to record a party? That just seems lame. So because none of the, like, the legitimate hip-hoppers are willing to do anything about this, you go over two slides... You will see who she gets instead. She makes a gang of her own, the Sugar Hill Gang. Now, I should also mention that the 
The fact that Sylvia Robinson called her record label Sugar Hill Records was a misnomer in of itself. Uh, Sugar Hill is a section of Harlem. She is not from Harlem. She, well, she's, you know, she's recording in suburban New Jersey, but it's it's Harlem, supposedly. Uh, that's the part of Harlem where Alexander Hamilton lived, weirdly enough. So, like Hamilton, like, that actually, <laughs> that's where Hamilton lived in New York, so go figure. But it's not like he, Hamilton was really a rap guy. Anywho, uh, she finds these three guys. Uh, once again, this story gets really interesting about how this happens because it gets really complicated and fuzzy. Um, we definitely know that Big Bank Hank, if you, the guy wearing the vest in the front, he was actually the manager for another rap group. Um, the Cold Crush Brothers, and actually his verse, his first verse in Rapper's Delight, is actually him using the lyrics of somebody else. Clearly, because like he says, he's the he spells out he's the Casanova, which is actually something in one of the cold. It was a Cold Crush Brothers uh, routine. So these three have never met each other before. Uh, Big Bang Hank was actually working in a pizza parlor whenever basically Silver Robinson's Sylvia Robinson or her son, because facts get fuzzy about early rap music. Uh, was basically riding around trying to find people who could rap in suburban New Jersey. And basically, uh, uh, Big Bang Hank is like, hey, I can do it, I can rap. And he runs from his pizza place and he records. And then two other guys from the street, that'd be, uh, oh God, Master G and uh, Wonder Mike. They're like, hey, we can rap too. And so pretty much they all get into her car and she's like, all right, I'm going to call you guys a Sugar Hill Gang. Even though you've never performed before, you're not from Sugar Hill. You have no street cred whatsoever. But, uh, yeah, we're going to do this. Now, the song that they sampled in Rapper's Delight is Good Times by Chick, which uh, basically a lot of early rap music sampled, even before this. Uh, go to the YouTube video right there. Uh, that's a shortened version of the song. The original song is 15 minutes long, and it's a weird song. Like, you probably know the first part. A hip, a hop, a hippie, a hippie to the hip, hip, hop, you don't stop. Uh, but there's a lot of other stuff. <laughs> like, the, the later verses get really weird. Like, you know, there's one part where it's like, you ever go to somebody's house and their food sucks and the, the bread tastes weird and the beans are nasty? It's, it's, it's just weird. So it's 15 minutes long. Weirdly enough, this becomes a hit. This becomes a massive hit. And pretty much everybody who hears it is confused why this becomes big. For instance, most early rappers are like, first of all, this song's 15 minutes long. Uh, most music execs think it's too long. Most rappers thought it was too short. They're like, who wants to go to a 15-minute party? That sounds like a sucky party. Um, it's 15 minutes long. Like, it goes off like gangbusters. It becomes super big, crazy successful, and actually sells a lot outside New York, which is a huge surprise to everybody. Because hip-hop was just a New York phenomenon. And now everybody is listening to it, and it's very much being marketed as disco. Like, it's very much being marketed as, like, this is a continuation of disco. This is a more masculine form of disco. It's still very black, but it's, like, a more heteronormative version of disco, which is problematic if you look at the attire that they wear later on, because it gets promoted as disco. Now, Sugar Hill Records would sign a lot more acts, and some of them actually do pretty well. Uh, for instance, the Sugar Hill Gang never really has another big, big hit. They have Apache, which um, is a song you know for other reasons. Um, the the Will Smith dance of Tonto, jump on it, that one. Uh, it's still a respectable roster because eventually Sylvia Robertson does get Grandmaster Flash to sign. If you go over one slide, you'll see Grandmaster Flash, uh, one of his early songs, probably one of the more important early rap songs. 
not probably, definitely one of the more important early rap songs is this, The Message. Y'all know the song. You can watch the video of that. Uh, this one is the first one that's like, hey, um, the early party stuff, we, we can do that type of rap, but we can have more of a, like, substance to it. Uh, the message talks about, like, you know, how it it's hard living in these places. There's broken glass everywhere. It's not necessarily the best place to live. You know, it's sometimes it's a jungle. I wonder how I keep from going under, that sort of thing. But I can't iterate this enough. Early rap is pushing very hard from the disco market. Uh, they're very much thinking, hey, this is going to be another fad like disco. Nobody thinks this has real staying power. They think, you know what, it's going to be fun. Disco's popular. We can make like a kind of straighter, more masculine version of disco. Nobody thinks it's going to really last for that long. But then another entrepreneur comes around, which really changes the hip-hop aesthetic and really gives it more legs. Now, the first rap song to gain national distribution is Rapper's Delight. Uh, there are theoretically other early rap songs I'm not going to get into, but Rapper's Delight is the first one with real national distribution. The second one is a novelty song by a guy by the name of Curtis Blow called Christmas Rappin'. I will not ask you to read it, because listen to it, because it's a very much a novelty song. It's exactly what you think it is. It's a Christmas rap about rap and about Christmas. But what's interesting is who Curtis Blow was managed by. Curtis Blow was managed by a guy by the name of Russell Simmons, go over one slide, who is pretty much capitalism personified. Uh, Russell Simmons is a guy I write extensively about. Um, actually, I'll talk about at the end how he's an interesting... There's been some changes in his... Um, oh, what's the word? I'm like, reputation lately, but interesting cat, Russell Simmons. Uh, Russell Simmons comes from a pretty middle-class background. I, I can't iterate that enough. Um, he grows up in Queens. He's born in Jamaica, Queens. Later moves over to uh, another, part of Queen, another part of Queens. To Hollis, Queens. His parents are very middle class. Like, both of his parents were college educated. Um, his dad's like a school principal or administrator. His mom also works for, like, the city. Uh, she's, like, in the Parks and Recs department. Um, they, they have very comfortable uh, middle class, like, middle class by any definition. Not just for an African-American definition in this time period, but just a very middle class upbringing. Uh, they provide their three sons a very comfortable, safe existence. Um, I, Russell Simmons' early childhood, it's very comfortable. That's the word I keep running into whenever I, you know, I, I study this guy immensely. I've interviewed him a few times. Not interviewed him, but talked to him a couple of times. Uh, very comfortable. Very comfortable. Very safe. Uh, however, Hollis becomes a little bit rougher thanks to crack and other things start coming in. It starts to get a little bit more rough. Uh, Russell Simmons, I should say, he's born in the late 50s. Uh, he's 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 uh, he's exposed to more rougher elements. Uh, he joins a gang for a very short period of time. He also works for uh, about a week at a fast food restaurant, and then he starts uh, City College in Harlem, basically City College in New York. His dad is insistent, like basically Russell, you need to come and uh, go to college. You know that's how your mother and I got into this like very respectable middle class existence. I want you to do this as well. At college, uh, Russell Simmons doesn't really focus on classes too, too much. You should. Um, he actually prefers to smoke uh, Angel Dust, uh, PCP, and hang out in the rec room. Now, in the rec room, he meets Curtis Walker, who starts getting into, like, rap. And Russell Simmons also spends a lot of time in nightclubs and discos. 
And there he hears a rapper by the name of Eddie Chiba, who's the first like really big um, nightclub rapper who blows his mind. Basically, Russell Simmons says, quote, at that point, I knew I wanted nothing but rap. It was like witnessing the invention of the wheel. However, even though, um, you know, he's friends with Curtis Walker, now going by the name of Curtis Blow and managing him, uh, Russell Simmons wants to get more in rap music, but he has no real talent for rapping or DJing. And he's okay with rap making beats, but not the best. Now, Russell Simmons has a little brother by the name of Joseph, who's also into rapping. And along with a friend of uh, um, Joseph's from high school, they have their own little rap group. And Russell Simmons is like, you know what? I can't rap by myself, but I can influence everything about my brother's rap group. And that's where he gets into his brother's rap group. Go over one more. That'd be Run DMC. Run DMC, basically Reverend Run is Russell Simmons' brother. Uh, you will see in that picture right there. Let's see. There's the Simmons brothers are in the middle. And then there's DMC, Daryl McDaniels, on the far right. And then their DJ Grandmaster, Jam Master J, not Grandmaster J, Jam Master J on the left. Uh, Russell Simmons had the, the curse, I should say, of always looking like he was much older than he is. He's like not even in his mid-20s in that picture, and he looks a gazillion years older. So once Russell Simmons takes over Run DMC, basically like really changing their group, uh, he really changes their aesthetic. If you go over one more, you'll see he Russell Simmons makes their image to be more obtainable. He's like, we don't want the flashy disco elements. Uh, you know, we want like Adidas track suits, uh, shoes, Adidas shoes. Be like this kind of tough guy look that was very obtainable. If you contrast this to, for instance, go over one more slide, disco raps aesthetic. Uh, this is Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five wearing very, very disco clothes, which is just, oh God, I don't, I don't even know what I can say about these outfits. A, a lot of leather. Um, God, I don't know who's wearing the like yellow bikini with the cowboy boots and the gold jacket and the hard hat. That's a... That's not the type of aesthetic that, like, non-disco people would ever wear, but that's how earliest um, earliest rap music really marketed itself. This very disco aesthetic. I, I just... I know, I kind of like Kid Creole's Bud Light outfit. That's, that's kind of funny. But the rest of it, this is not something that normal people would ever wear, whereas Run DMC style was a bit more obtainable. You know, the Adidas tracksuits, the gold chains, the Kangol hats, it's a little bit more obtainable. Now, Simmons also gets a lot into party promotion and planning, uh, using his brother's group to get him exposure, as well as managing uh, Curtis Blow, who signed on Mercury Records. Uh, Simmons is able to get Run DMC on Profile Records, who is not Profile Records, which is not a hip-hop label, but has some national distribution. I can't iterate this enough. It's all very young, very small potatoes, very early. They're not making tons of music. But Run DMC starts getting a lot bigger because Simmons is marketing it as youth rebellion music, not really black music, if that makes sense. He basically says Run DMC is the kings of rock, not rap. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, you'll see their music video for the king of rock. You'll notice in the music video that I have for Rockbox, which is one of their earliest uh, music videos, in fact, their earliest music video, that um, they're really playing this rock idea. It's not You're not having a rap aesthetic. It's like, hey, we're youth music, we're cool music, we're okay for white people to listen to. Like, Russell Simmons is really playing hard for the white market. And they're saying that Run DMC, we're the kings of rock music, not rap music. Basically trying to cross over to mainstream white audiences. 
Now, what's interesting, Run DMC is the first rap group on MTV and the second black artist, period. Um, only Michael Jackson was the first. Um, ask me about MTV sometime. Uh, MTV was weirdly segregated early on, like extremely segregated early on. Now, in the midst of this, Simmons has a problem. He's doing deals with other records, but he's learning a truth of the music business. Um, you don't make a lot of money in the music business unless you own the record label. Like, artists are not getting huge points on their, um, they, they call it the music business points, percentages off that. Like, even somebody like Madonna. Madonna's probably the best example. She's super popular in the 80s. She's making about mm, five to six cents on the dollar for her albums that are sold. And she's one of the, you know, most well-known, famous, you know, powerful singers out there. And she's only making five to six cents on the dollar off of that. The record label and other things are taking a lot more. Russell Simmons is realizing, hey, you know, Run DMC is getting a little bit more popular, but I'm not making money. If only he had his own record label. Now, put that on the back burner for a second, because let's talk about a Jewish kid right now named Rick Rubin, who moves into a dorm room. You see, Rick Rubin, he grows up, he's a kid from Long Island. He's trying to rebel against his very accommodating parents. Um, it's funny to have Rick Rubin talking about rebellion, because he doesn't have that much to rebel against. His parents are very accommodating. He's the only child of, like, very wealthy parents. And, like, every time he, like, wants to do something, his parents are too accommodating. Uh, for instance, uh, early on, he wants to get into photography. He's like, I want to get a camera. And so his parents buy him, not only do they buy him, like, the fanciest camera out there, but while he's still in high school, they send him to Harvard to take, like, photography classes by, like, the best photographer at Harvard. So that's the type of person that he is. Uh, basically, his parents are like, hey, you need to go to college, and then we want you to go to law school. He's like, I don't want to do that because I'm a, I'm a kid. He's like, they're like, all right, you can either go to the University of Chicago or NYU. And, he, and we're going to pay for all of it. And he's like, fine, I'll go to NYU. Uh, he doesn't want to go to class. You can see there he is in his dorm room. Apparently, that's the clean side of his dorm room. The other side of his dorm room apparently had nothing but music equipment. Um, he likes music equipment. He has tons of recording equipment, tons of records. He likes his rock music, that sort of thing. Um, his parents want him to go to college. He doesn't really go to class. Uh, he prefers to go to nightclubs because he's in New York. His favorite thing to do is to watch pro wrestling. You know, it's pro wrestling and rap music. They have a lot more overlapping, you might think. And really play music in his dorm room. He really likes punk rock music. Remember, he's all big into this rebellion scene. But he discovers rap music early on. He's like, wow, this is more authentic rebellion. He's like, this, this stuff's got an edge that rock music doesn't have anymore. And he makes friends with a guy named Jazzy J, who's an early rap guy, an early rap guy by the name of Jazzy J. Uh, basically, it's like, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, Rick Rubin, you're a cool guy. He's like, by the way, he's super young at this time. He's like 18, 19 years old. And so he's already pretty adept at recording stuff, and he has excess money because of his overly generous parents. So he sets up his own little recording studio in his dorm room and starts making his own beats, starts making his own music. Starts out with art rock, but then he gets into like punk rock. And later on, he's like, you know what? I want to make um, rap music. He's like, I've heard rap music. I think I can make it, so I'm going to do it. He, his label that he creates is called Def Jam. He calls it Def Jam, and it's a Jamaican slang. And although he prefers art rock, he's like, I'm going to make a rap song. If you go over one slide, you'll see it's yours. I, I just love the fact that I found this. This is the original label. This is the first Def Jam, well, the first rap song that came from Def Jam. 
Uh, the first actual Def Jam song is probably one of Russell, uh, sorry, Rick Rubin's art rock songs. So you can click the YouTube link to hear It's Yours, uh, done by a game, guy by the name of Tila Rock. Uh, Tila Rock is not a well-known rapper. He's actually working at a pharmacy in this time period. His brother is a fairly known rapper, part of the Treacherous Three, but they're signed to a record label, so they can't record with Russell Simmons, sorry, with Rick Rubin. Now, Russell Simmons hears this, and he says, quote, this is the blackest thing I've ever heard. He says this beat is the blackest sounding beat he's ever heard. Fact is, the guy who made it is not a black guy. It's Rick Rubin, a teenage Jewish kid living in his dorm room. Now, ultimately, destiny happens when they do meet. They finally meet at the recording of a TV show. Uh, basically, there's chemistry. There's immediate chemistry. They can both see the advantages with working for each other. Uh, for Simmons, Rick Rubin can make uh, incredibly good beats, knows the music side, also has money. Uh, for Simmons, for Rick Rubin, Simmons knows business, has unlimited drive, and already has some contacts with, some, with his management of Run DMC. Basically, he knows people in the record business, for distribution particularly. I should also mention that even though they are very much linked together because of Russell Simmons, Run DMC is never signed to Def Jam, ever. So even though Rick, uh, Russell Simmons is deeply involved with both Run DMC and Def Jam, they're theoretically different businesses. So they merge. They merge. Basically, the, the two come together, and they make a partnership. They make a partnership where basically Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin come together to make this new record label, which is going to keep the name of Def Jam. And uh, to get the money, basically, Rick Rubin has to go to his parents, and they give it to him if he agrees to go to law school. If when the business fails, basically they're like, this business is going to fail. By the way, this is in 1984. They are super young. Uh, J, uh, Russell Simmons is 27 and Rick Rubin is 21. So they are crazy young. You can see the picture right there. There they are in 1984. They come together. Uh, they, they do this. They're like, all right, we're going to make our own record label. It's going to be awesome. So now they need talent. You know, they got to sign some people, and boy, howdy, do they knock it out of the park with their first signing. Uh, they're basically, they start putting out some ads in various, uh, you know, recordings and stuff, basically saying, okay, uh, you know, why don't you uh, call Def Jam if you're an enterprising young rapper? One guy is a guy by the name of James Todd Smith. He's a 16-year-old. He's a kid. He's a baby living in Queens. He sends a tape. He sends a tape to Def Jam's address, which is just Rick Rubin's dorm room at NYU. And basically, um, they talk on the phone, because basically Rick Rubin hears it, and is like, wow, this is a really good song. We should sign this guy. He's great. He's amazing. He's only a kid. So they talk on the phone, and then you know Rick Rubin tells um, James Todd Smith, look, it's LL Cool J. Go over one slide. It's LL Cool J. Uh, ladies love Cool James. That's his moniker. He's a 16-year-old kid, very good-looking, lady killer. And basically, LL Cool J comes to, the, comes to the dorm room, and he is stunned by Rick Rubin not being black. And apparently, Rick Rubin's very used to, Like, so much of early Rick Rubin and Def Jam is basically people being surprised that Rick Rubin was not black. And apparently, Rick Rubin said that was always cool. Like, he was like, that was great. You know, people thought I was different than who I am. So basically, um, LL Cool J, he goes by the moniker, you know, of LL Cool J, Ladies Love Cool James. Uh, he, he and Rick Rubin come together. They make a new song called I Need a Beat. Beat. 
Once again, produced by Rick Rubin uh, with a stripped-down style. That's something that he's really well-known for. And, uh, you know, this is the first post-merger release for Def Jam. Uh, Smith is he's good, he's young, he's good-looking. He also embodies the very stripped-down sound that Rick Rubin is very fond of. And Russell Simmons uses all of his connections to get this on the radio everywhere. LL Cool J becomes a superstar almost immediately. Puts Def Jam on the rap on the on the rap. They're already rapping on the map. Now Rick Rubin also also pulls upon his history with um, with his own past with a bunch of punk rocker friends of his that uh, they were called the Young and the Useless. He was kind of a member, kind of not. He didn't really play instruments too much with this, but he kind of joined them. He basically there's some punk rockers. He's like, hey guys. Y'all are okay, but you know what we should do? We should ditch the instruments and start just rapping. Uh, they're all white kids. They're all white Jewish kids. Anyway, go over one more slide. You'll see. They are the Beastie Boys. Those are the Beastie Boys. Uh, I, I just love this picture because you have you have the Beastie Boys being the Beastie Boys. Rick Rubin, very happy about being with the Beastie Boys. And Russell Simmons being like, how the hell do these guys get signed with me? <laughs> I, I just love this picture so much. God, Russell Simmons. He's just a fun guy. Uh, the first single that they have on Def Jam is Rock Hard, not very well received. Still, they embody uh, the Def Jam spirit, and I cannot iterate this enough, they are pushed super hard to be crossover artists. They really, really push Beastie Boys as like, hey, this is rap music, but they're like, white. They're white, this is like this kind of youth rebellion. Uh, they, I mean, the Beastie Boys are hip-hop bona fides. Like, they are very well-known, very well-respected in the hip-hop community, but they're also very much very white and Jewish. Now, the Beastie Boys really kind of go through this whole, like, rebellion aesthetic. You can hear with a song like, nah. You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party. Yeah, y'all know the song. You can watch the music video, kind of iterating in this whole, like, rebellion status. You know, this is, this is kids' music, talking about how things are hard being a kid, playing into youth rebellion, teenage rebellion. Rick Rubin shows up in the music video. Everybody shows up in the music video. Russell Simmons is in the music video. It ends in a pie fight. This type of thing. Very immature. That's kind of what their whole shtick is. It's like, we're, we're immature. Um, one of the things that Russell Simmons does really well to like get them a lot of promotion is he puts them on tour with M Madonna. Basically, Madonna is looking for like an opening act. They call Russell Simmons. They're like, hey, Russell Simmons, do you manage the Fat Boys, who's another rap group in this time period? Probably one of the few rap groups that Russell Simmons does not manage. He's like, nah, I don't manage the, uh, the, the Fat Boys, but I do manage the Beastie Boys, and they're even better. Y'all should listen to the Beastie Boys. Put them on tour with Madonna. Uh, they go on tour with Madonna. Uh, they piss off a lot of people because Rick Rubin really loves professional wrestling. He's like, look, guys, they're not going to like you. You know, this is a bunch of little girls wanting to listen to Madonna music. So you're not going to go out there and perform and get them to like you. You should do a pro wrestling thing where they, where you like really try to hype them up and get them to hate you, like get them to boo you. And he's like, that's what you need to do. You need to like get them to boo you and yell at you, that sort of thing. That's where you're going to get your uh, attention from. That's where you're going to get all the esteem. You know, they're, they, they may hate you. They're going to boo you, but they're not going to forget you. And that's pretty much what the Beastie Boys do. They're pretty much their set with Madonna is basically they get out and they just kind of fart around on stage. Uh, you can see this picture where they are there of them um, shooting water guns at her at Madison Square Garden. Uh, very much known as like, you know, just a jokey thing. It raises their profile immensely. 
and Def Jam kind of becomes the expectation for rap music, and Simmons's like entrepreneurial spirit has a lot to do with it. Also, there's something that happens, which is one of those weird times where, um, like, art and life overlap in the weirdest way possible. So, Def Jam comes together as a as a record label in 1984. So later that year, they get a chance to uh, do the soundtrack for a movie. Uh, basically, the movie kind of turns into like, hey, we should make the story of two guys making a record label. They call it Crush Groove. You can see the opening. Um, that's like what the publicity shot for it. Pretty much everybody in there is like either a Def Jam or a Russell Simmons affiliated artist. Basically, um, the movie stars the Def Jam artist as themselves. And it's about two guys named Rick and Russell who make a record label, which they did. And make it even more confusing over one slide... Rick Rubin plays a character named Rick Rubin, the guy who starts the record label, along with Russell Walker, instead of Russell Simmons, who's played by Blair Underwood. Pretty much the only person who's not the real person is Russell Simmons, who's Blair Underwood, but it's clearly Russell Simmons, the character is. Uh, don't think too hard about the overlap. It's just one of those times where like art and life really overlap and get weird. Meanwhile, Run DMC is getting bigger than ever. And they actually signed an endorsement deal with Adidas, which is the first of its kind, and demonstrates the sheer capitalist streak within Simmons. So now buying Adidas was a way to show adherence to hip-hop. We've talked about this before in this class, how the idea that buying a product shows adherence to like a culture or a mindset. It's a very American thing. Also, if you go over one more slide, uh, Russell Simmons brings in Lior Cohen. You can see Lior Cohen right there. Oh my gosh, Russell Simmons looks so drunk in that picture. Uh, to take over pretty much all of Simmons's business affairs, which pretty much Simmons has effectively delegated himself out of a job, and he couldn't be happier. In response, Simmons starts using more drugs, spending more time in nightclubs, and messing around with models. Also starts to get more interested in the fashion industry. Now, the one thing that Simmons does do, though, with Run DMC, is in 1986, they put over probably the biggest crossover record of all time. You know it. You love it. That would be Walk This Way. It's, it's a crossover with Aerosmith. Uh, brings in the band Aerosmith pretty much back from the dead. Or back from the brink of irreverence. Uh, Aerosmith was a much bigger band in like the 70s. It's a monster hit, and it kind of embodies all the crossover that Simmons desired. He, he loved this idea of crossover. Um, you can you know see, basically, this is a huge hit for everybody. This gets them way ton of exposure. For instance, they're able to go on um, the uh, American Bandstand with uh, Dick Clark. That's a really big, very mainstream thing. Uh, really embodies all the you know all the crossover stuff that Russell Simmons wants to deal with. Uh, later on, basically, uh, Rick Rubin's like, "Hey, we need to um, cross over with more stuff." Um, I should also mention right about this time that the lines between Simmons's R Rush Management, which has artists like Run DMC and Def Jam, which is supposed to be a separate company, are very thin. They even share the same set of books, which is a huge no-no in the business world. And also Simmons is leaning more upon Cohen, which upsets Simmons. Sorry, which upsets, sorry, Ruben. 
Because theoretically, Lyra Cohen's only with Rush Management, and but he's doing more stuff with Def Jam, even though Rick Rubin never really liked Lyra Cohen for various reasons. Uh, Rick Rubin does, however, make two big signings for the future of Def Jam. If you go over one slide, you'll see Slayer. Uh, that's like a thrash metal band whose music you always liked. He's like, basically, this is more rebellion music. You know, we're, we're going to be a teen rebellion company. Slayer embodies that. And the final one is uh, Public Enemy. Uh, Public Enemy being signed. This is a group that Rick Rubin loved and Russell Simmons did not. Like, hardcore. Uh, Public Enemy was very politically-minded rap, uh, very politically-minded. Uh, Chuck D is a very politically-minded dude. And the lines were, were, are, are too deep. Basically, Simmons doesn't like this, but Rick Rubin's like, we got to do this. Lines are becoming too, too deep. It's becoming too divided. Uh, basically, shortly after Public Enemy assigned in 1988, uh, Simmons and Rubin break up the company. Basically, they split their partnership. Uh, Rick Rubin keeps like Slayer and some of the more rock bands uh, to make his own record label. He calls it American Records. He does okay. Uh, Rick Rubin's still a very nice guy. Um, loves professional wrestling. If you ever meet Rick Rubin, talk to him about professional wrestling. He will love you. He's a fun guy. I like him. Uh, not too much hard feelings, though, because basically they're like, hey, we our partnership served its purpose, but they kind of split up. Uh, it's also crazy how young they were when this happened. Like, Simmons was 31, Rick Rubin was 25. And, and like, they, they split pretty amicably. Um, they both do their own thing. I mean, it's amazing that their partnership lasted four years. And it's really big because after this, like, hip-hop, because a lot of this partnership, it's just widespread music. Uh, Rick Rubin, like I said, he's very well respected for his producing work. Um, he does a lot of producing in a lot of different genres. Yes, he does some rap music, but he also does like Johnny Cash. In fact, that's probably the thing he becomes best known for later on, is he records Johnny Cash, and it's pretty well done. Meanwhile, Simmons keeps up the whole Def Jam marketing machine and starts getting into his own separate line of companies. Uh, he has like Def Comedy Jam, he has Fat Farm, his clothing line and a whole host of other marketed materials. Uh, for instance, if you go over one more, you'll see Fat Farm. One more after that. This is the one that I just find the most amazing. American Classics. This was Russell Simmons's classic brand. If you go over one more slide, you'll see this. The, the American Classics. Very Polo. Very Ralph Lauren. And, like, it, this was sold at Walmart. Like, this is, this is what I would say with what I find most interesting about this. What I wanted to talk about. It's just how much rabid crossed over. Like, it had done what disco couldn't. It was not seen as gay, and it was very black, but it was not decried. And yes, the genres and content would change, but it would remain youth music and amazingly stay reverent for well over 45 years now. And I would say it's like the Star Wars of music genres, because it is just so adaptable. And then next week, we're going to talk about one particular genre that really talks about a time and a place, which is gangster rap. But we'll get into that next time. But just think about that. It's a very interesting thing. By the way, this was a very Spartan <laughs> lecture, I would say. This is not five hours, but uh, if you're more interested in all this, uh, please take my rap history class next time it's offered. So for that, Dr. Dully, wishing you a good day.